Craig Keener is a world-renowned academic, theologian, scholar, and New Testament lecturer at Asbury Theological Seminary in Kentucky. Craig speaks to us about the impact of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and early Christianity in the Greco-Roman world. So Craig, how did Christian faith become a part of your life? I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I actually didn't know a whole lot about Christianity. Obviously, I'd heard about Jesus, but I made fun of Christians. I didn't think Christians were very smart because like 80% of the people in my country back then claimed to be Christians, and yet you couldn't tell by how they lived that they took it seriously. And that wasn't true of all of them, but I kind of blended everybody together. And yet I needed to realize that the Christian faith doesn't rise or fall on people who nominally claim to be his followers. It rises or falls on Jesus and whether he rose from the dead. And one day some people brought me the message about Jesus. The way that they brought it was not perhaps the best way. Um, I, I hit them with what I thought was an unanswerable question. I said, if there's a God, where did the dinosaur bones come from? To which they responded, the devil put them there. So they weren't experts in paleontology. They weren't really quite experts in the Bible, but they did tell me how Jesus died and, and rose again. And, you know, even though I didn't believe what they were saying about the dinosaurs, I didn't want to stake eternity on them being wrong on everything. And, you know, I'd studied different religions, lots of different philosophies. But as I walked home after talking with them, this was something different, something I'd never experienced before. The presence of God was so strong there that there was no way that I could ignore it. The presence of God that came to me through that message, I had to respond to it one way or the other. And finally, after struggling with this for you know, 45 minutes or, or so, I said, all right, God, I'll believe in you. And I don't understand what Jesus dying or rising from the dead has to do with putting me right with you, but I know I'm not right with you now. And so if you want to put me right with you, you're going to have to do it yourself. And I, this is not what happens to everybody, but it's what happened to me. I felt something rushing through my body like I'd never felt before. And I jumped up really scared and I said, okay, I don't know much else about Christianity yet, but I know God is real. And I always said, if there actually was a God, I would give God everything. It's interesting because your, your life is a combination of um, significant academic research and work, yet your faith is also influenced by an emotional experience. How do you deal with those two uh, differing ways of approaching faith? I, I wished that they had given me some more solid answers at the beginning. I had to go hunt for the answers myself afterwards. And that did require some adjustments in what you know the church that I joined taught me uh, eventually. But the more I've learned, the, the more solid it's made me in my faith in Christ. Especially my work is in ancient historical research. Uh, I'd wanted to do before I met Jesus, I wanted to be an astrophysicist because you know that's one way that you can look for truth in the world. But when I found out that that you know God had given us the Bible, I said, okay, well, 
I really want to look for truth there. And so I began to mine that. But especially as I look at uh, ancient historical sources and the way that they were written and so on, it's increased my confidence so much more intellectually, academically, in what I find in terms of uh, Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection. These are foundations for our faith. In the Greco-Roman world, in that time that Jesus lived, what was the Roman Empire like? What the Roman Empire was like actually varied from one place to another. If you were in Rome, you would get a free dole of grain every month. But that grain was taken from impoverished peasants who worked the land in Egypt. And the ancient business documents from Egypt suggest that perhaps half of all infants born never made it to adulthood, dying of malnutrition, preventable diseases, and so forth. And part of that was due to the oppressive economic system of the Roman Empire. Now, some places profited from that system. Some places suffered more from that system. So it was prejudicial. Even in Rome, most of the people lived in tenement apartments that were very small. Um, the higher up you went, the flimsier they were, the more likely they were to collapse. And, you know, at the top, you just, people would be living in a single room with just enough room to lie down for, for bed. So some people had it really good in the Roman Empire. Those are usually the ones we read about. But the average person struggled a lot. People who read the Bible or people who are part of church talk about Jesus of Nazareth, which makes Nazareth sound quite significant. In the Roman Empire, where did Nazareth sit? Probably nobody outside of Galilee really heard of Nazareth until they heard of Jesus from Nazareth. Uh, maybe, maybe some people in Judea heard of it, but through most of the Roman Empire, Nazareth was just politically insignificant. But it turned out to be spiritually significant, which can be an encouragement for us that sometimes God is found in the least expected places. Yeah. Out of Nazareth comes someone, Jesus, who calls himself a Messiah. What, what, was, what did that term mean? Different Jewish groups had different understandings of what the Messiah was. The, the term literally means anointed one, which made no sense to Greeks or Romans, but it was, a, it was a Jewish understanding of the anointed king, the descendant of David. And most Jewish people expected that because he was going to be the, the ultimate king, the ultimate ruler, that he was going to crush the Roman oppressors, deliver God's people, and exalt them over the nations. Jesus did come to be a king of sorts, but not the kind of king or the kind of kingdom that his people were expecting, at least not the first time. He spoke of the kingdom as like a seed. Someday it'll be a mighty tree, so to speak, but it first comes as a seed. It comes in an insignificant way as far as the world's categories. Um, the New Testament often talks about God's power made perfect in weakness. And the ultimate example of that is in the cross, where Jesus doesn't overthrow Rome, but he lets himself be killed by the Roman imperial power, trusting his father to raise him from the dead. 
People now know the cross as like a symbol. They see it around people's necks and on tops of churches. What was the cross first used by? When the, when the Romans used the cross, why did they use the cross? The cross was meant to be a humiliating tool of execution. So you would kill people by slow torture and you would strip them naked so they'd be there in front of everybody. If they needed to relieve themselves of wastes, it would just be in front of everybody, uh, especially uh, further to the east, like in, in Judea and in, in Syria. Nakedness was considered very shameful. So it was, it was meant to deter people from being revolutionaries. It was meant to execute people who were low-class provincials, and especially those who, as the, um, as the Roman governor's de decree put it, claimed to be a king, or claimed to, in other ways, have treason against the, the Roman Empire, against the emperor. So it was a symbol of humiliation and torture. Yes. And intriguing, isn't it, that this Messiah figure ends up there? So, why the cross? Partly, I think, to show us that God's power is made perfect in weakness. You know, the miracles are wonderful. Uh, the Bible portrays miracles as a foretaste of the future kingdom, future glory. But the cross reminds us that even where things look their darkest, even where things look impossible, the greatest travesty of injustice God is still at work to bring about his purposes. You, you said uh, before you were telling us that you struggled in belief. One of the things you must have struggled with was the resurrection. How do you deal with that now? I didn't actually struggle with the resurrection too much. What I struggled with was, was whether there was a God. Once there was a God, resurrection's no problem. <laughs> And why is the resurrection, this sounds like a silly question, but why is the resurrection important? The resurrection is the cornerstone of our faith. I mean, if Jesus simply was executed for high treason against the majesty of the emperor, for claiming to be king, then, well, he's like a lot of other people who were crucified for that. He had some great teachings about, you know, being nice to people, loving people, loving, loving everyone, but if he rose from the dead, then God the Father vindicated him and Jesus is still alive. And the witness of those who knew him is true. Jesus is alive. He's also Lord of the universe and reigns and we owe him our lives. We're talking about the fact that the message of Jesus, here we are 2,000 years later, and people are still talking about and spreading the message of Jesus. What did Jesus say that caused people to go out and tell others? There are some ways, it's very interesting, there's some ways that the early Christian movement was unique among other movements. It was very distinctive in, in talking about Jesus' promise to give the Spirit to his followers. That's attested widely in our, in our earliest sources. Um, there was one Jewish movement that talked about that. Uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls were associated with that movement. 
But something that was really unique about the early Christian movement was, uh, and this again is in early sources, Jesus commissioned his followers to go out and reach the world, to reach even the Gentiles. Now, that wasn't a typical Jewish understanding. And even the idea that Gentiles could, could become part of God's people, they could be treated just like Jewish people, that God would welcome them. Uh, I mean, there were, there were Jewish people who welcomed Gentiles, but in terms of a whole movement going out and saying, look, there's one God, they were less than one-tenth of one percent of the Roman Empire. So they're, they're in, a, in a context of a vast sea of polytheism, people worshiping many, many gods, often competing gods, fighting against each other for different things. But they're preaching that there's one God. He's the God who had worked through the history of Israel. And now this God is available because he loved us so much. He came to us in person, in history, so that we could know his heart, know what he's really like and have a relationship with him. And, and interestingly enough, you know, you can say, well, that's just one movement, but it's actually happening. I mean, there's no, there's no religious movement in the world that is as multicultural as Christianity. I mean, lots of Christians have not lived up to Jesus' teaching, but that initial impetus in, in Jesus' movement, empowered by the Spirit, going out and spreading his word among the nations. It's, it's happening. Something that would have been inconceivable to somebody in the first century. Looking back, we can see how it's been carried out. Interesting you say empowered by the Spirit, because if, if for those people who read through the Bible, there's a picture of them after the resurrection, but they're crowded together in a room, you know, fearful of the world, fearful of the, the future. You wouldn't have thought they were going to last five minutes. Something happened and they're preaching on the street. How do you understand what happened? Uh, in the parts of the Bible that were written before Jesus, we read about God's spirit, um, probably understood in terms of God himself uh, working among his people. God's spirit would empower people to prophesy or do other things for him, to, to speak for him, to hear his voice sometimes to lead his people and so on. What you have after Jesus rises from the dead and is exalted, Jesus sends the Spirit, and this is a promise for all of his followers, that all of his followers can have a relationship with him, that he's going to empower all of his followers to be able to live a new life. Sometimes we think, oh, we have to do this on our own, but that's really not what Christianity teaches at the heart. The Christianity that Jesus taught is something that's empowered by God himself coming and living inside of us. And sometimes we forget that, but really God himself living inside of us makes the impossible possible. Your experience uh, when you are considering Christian faith of feeling overwhelmed by some sort of emotion, do you see that as the spirit? The spirit can be expressed in emotion. The spirit isn't limited by any means to emotion. So I recognize the spirit working through my academic study as well. But 
It is true. I mean, if, if you grab a hold of an electric circuit uh, and you've got electricity coursing through your body, our bodies aren't meant to be able to handle all of that. And sometimes people can experience God in such a way that it just overloads our circuits. That's not surprising. Mm. The church started to spread and they started to talk about the, the, the person of Jesus through those early years. In what way did the church start to share the message of Jesus and where did it go? Initially, the early Christians were in many ways like most of us today. You know, they had their own homes, they had their own uh, places that they lived and worked. They weren't about to go out to other places. But there were some people who were bicultural. They, they were Jewish people, but they'd come from abroad. They were immigrants in Jerusalem. And so they already had started to think about how to communicate uh, across cultural boundaries. Well, then persecution came and that scattered the Christians. You know, they may not have done it initially because Jesus told them to, but when persecution came and they had no choice, they had to go out. And the bicultural Christians, in a sense, became the nucleus of what was to come because they, they were already comfortable working in the Greek world and they knew how to communicate their message in those ways. And so they began sharing, sharing that. And then there were certain people who had particular skills and abilities, including one by the name of Saul of Tarsus. He was actually one of the lead persecutors, but he got drafted. <laughs> he had, you know, I, I mentioned my, my own experience, but he had a much more dramatic experience than that, where Jesus actually appeared to him and spoke to him. People around heard the noise and saw the light, and he, became a follower of Jesus when he realized that was the truth, even though he realized he knew he had been persecuting followers of Jesus, he was going to get it too. But he began sharing the message also and was very effective in doing so. So Craig, the first persecution was from Jewish leaders to, to those who followed Jesus, but later it became the Roman Empire. Why would the Roman Empire care about what was a very small group? The Roman Empire probably wasn't picking on Christians just because they were Christians, but because they were concerned about subversion anywhere. So they, they normally didn't allow groups beyond a certain size to meet anywhere, uh, especially in Rome. Synagogues, you know, they made, they made arrangements for that. But once the Jewish believers and Gentiles couldn't find a place in the synagogues, then it could become an issue. And if somebody accuses them of treason, of not being loyal, I mean, after all, they're following somebody who was executed for claiming to be king, then it could be very problematic for them. So in the early second century, uh, Pliny, in his uh, letter to the Emperor Trajan, uh, book 10, uh, letter 96, Pliny says to the emperor, look, I've, I've uh, found these Christians. I haven't found them doing anything wrong per se, but you know, they're accused to me. So I follow up and I say, okay, well, I'll let you go if you just offer some incense to the image of the emperor. Seems like a small thing to him just to show you're really loyal to Rome. 
they refuse to do it. And so I execute them. Why was offering a pinch of incense a problem for a Christian? Because Christians, like Jews, recognized there was only one true God. And only one God is worthy of our worship. And Romans were kind of, in today's terms, we might say they were relativistic. They say, everybody, every God is acceptable. But if you say there's only one God, that's intolerant. And if you say that that God is not the emperor, that's treason. What kept Christians going when they were being executed? If you really believe that Jesus offers eternal life, then he's worth everything. He's worth more than life in this world because you've got life forever. Paul, uh, we, we, we read in Acts about Paul going to, to Rome, towards Rome, and he, even that he was planning to go on to Spain. But the church actually spread in a number of other places as well. What, what were some of the pictures that we see of the church spreading in other directions, even in those first hundred years? Well, actually, the first Gentile Christian was from Africa. In Acts chapter 8, verses 27 to 40, Philip, who's, who's a bicultural Christian, he's, he's a Greek-speaking Jewish immigrant in Jerusalem. When persecution starts and the church is scattered, he goes to Samaria and preaches there to Samaritans, and, and they welcome his message. And then he's sent uh, down the road you know, sometimes things don't seem to make sense, but God knows what he's doing. He's sent on this deserted road, and he comes across this African court official in a chariot. And just to make sure that he doesn't miss what he's supposed to do, the spirit says to him, go up and speak to this guy. And it turns out that the guy has just come from Jerusalem, and he's reading probably a Greek translation of the book of Isaiah, and he's reading what this prophet wrote that relates to Jesus, hundreds of years before Jesus came and how he would, he would suffer and die on behalf of others. And, and Philip says, do you understand what you're reading? And the guy says, no, can you explain it to me? And so this man uh, accepts the message of Jesus. And, and this was really special to him because he was uh, probably castrated if we understand the, the text the right way. So he couldn't, according to Deuteronomy, he couldn't become a full convert to Judaism. But he's welcomed, because of his faith in Jesus, into this Jewish movement, the, the movement of Jesus' followers. And we know that the movement spread very, very early in Africa. For example, uh, the kingdom of Aksum, somewhere around 333 AD, the emperor Isanus, uh, accepted the message that was brought to him by some Syrian Christians. So about the same time that the Roman Empire was opening up to Christianity, East Africa began opening up to Christianity as well. And later it spread into uh, especially the place where the, this African court official was from, which would have been in Nubia uh, in the Sudan. And that remained a predominantly Christian area for about a thousand years until it was forcibly stamped out. Christian faith in the Roman Empire went from being persecuted mm. to being uh, an acceptable religion. Uh, what was that shift? Well, I'm sure a lot of people had been praying for it. And in political terms, there were 
massive numbers of Christians already in the eastern part of the Roman Empire, places like Egypt and Syria, and to some extent in, uh, well, in much of, much of uh, Asia Minor in what's now Turkey. In the Western Empire, it wasn't, it wasn't so much. The percentage was a lot lower. But Constantine's mother was a Christian. And so Constantine had a reason to not think Christians were bad to begin with. And when apparently he had a vision or a dream, you know, there's some debate about what exactly happened, that um, the God of the cross would be with him in his battle. And so he pledged to this God. And when he won the battle, he said, okay, I'm going to follow this, and this is going to be legal in the Roman Empire. And that brought a, a great change. In many ways, a, a good change. But, you know, we, we human beings tend to be lazy. And so without the persecution to keep people saying, you know, Jesus is worth everything, I'll, I'll give my life for Jesus, people got a lot more ready to just relax in their faith. and. And because it was more popular to be a Christian, you had a lot of people who officially were Christians but didn't actually um, even understand all, all of what that meant. So Greg, Paul, when he was arguing with people, you know, especially in the, in the Areopagus, argued from an intellectual point of view. But miracles played a key part. What, what sort of part did miracles play in Acts? You know, in the third and fourth century, it's been documented that the leading cause of conversion to Christianity was people being healed in the name of Jesus. And we already see that in the book of Acts um, very, very commonly. That was what got people's attention. Miracles don't convert people by themselves. Miracles, though, raise the stakes and let you know this is God doing something. So you either have to accept or reject. You can't ignore. So sometimes they led to persecution, but often they, they brought people to faith. and. You have this not only Luke's testimony, sometimes there's eyewitness testimony in Acts. Uh, sometimes it's in the, the sections that are said to be we speaking. But Paul in his letters, like 2 Corinthians 12, 12, he's speaking to the Corinthians and says, you yourselves saw the miracles and wonders and signs that were done when I was among you. Well, normally you don't like make something up and then ask the person you're talking to to bear witness to it themselves. So clearly this is something they themselves had experienced. And he talks about it happening regularly in the churches. There are some that say, well, that was back in those early years of the church and miracles have stopped. What's your perception on that? Miracles are still a leading cause of conversion to Christianity today. There was a Pew Forum study done in 2006 in, in which they surveyed people in, in 10 countries. And in those 10 countries alone, you had hundreds of millions of people who claimed to have witnessed divine healing. Now, nobody would say, you know, every claim like that is actually divine healing. And nobody would say, certainly, that we can uh, demonstrate that every one of those is divine healing, that they couldn't be explained some other way. But you can't start with the premise that miracles don't happen when you have all these testimonies. Moreover, you have um, the church in China wasn't in that uh, study of those 10, those 10 countries, but a source from within the China Christian Council around the year 2000 
said that over the previous 20 years, about half of all conversions to Christianity were due to faith healing experiences. And a source from within the house church movement placed it even higher, especially in the rural areas, considerably higher. You have not just Christians saying, okay, I believe that I experienced a miracle, but you have millions of people who abandoned centuries of other traditions, sometimes at great social cost to themselves because they believe that they experienced or witnessed something so out of the ordinary that happened in the name of Jesus. So it's not saying everybody gets healed that gets prayed for, otherwise everybody automatically become a Christian. Miracles are not the, the full consummation of God's purpose, they're a foretaste of the kingdom, but a reminder that God is really at work among us and will fulfill his full promises. If you get down to examples, you know, when I was interviewing people, it's not just the, you know, the millions here and the millions there that we get learn about from surveys, but you actually interview people in my own circle of people, um, in my wife's circle, people that we know personally, there are a number of them who have witnessed people raised from the dead, I mean, as far as anybody can tell. And then you have people like Sean George and so on, uh, Chauncey Crandall, doctors where there's medical documentation. So, yeah, miracles still happen. Do you think it's kind of ironic that you started life as a skeptic, atheist who wanted to be an astrophysicist and now you talk up miracles. Yeah, there's some irony in that. Uh, I still like astrophysics, by the way. I'm just not competent to do it at this point. But that's the kind of irony that we often find in the Bible, where God touches unlikely people. And so maybe somebody who's, who's listening to this may consider themselves an unlikely candidate. God has surprises for us. It's cool.